0: I want to talk this afternoon about conflict and strife. It is the big celeb news. Some of you will be aware of it. The, it's finally kind of erupted. Kim Cattrall attacks Sarah Jessica Parker this week. Have you seen it? Some of you are looking at me as if to say, I don't even know those people. I don't even know what Twitter is. <laughs> Some of you will have already taken sides. In this debate, we live in a world of conflict, don't we? Everywhere that we turn, we see conflict. There are nations in conflict with each other. There is conflict at work, there is conflict in families, there is conflict at home, there is conflict in friendship groups, in any clubs or societies or sports groups. Conflict is written into the very identity of human beings. It is part of our experience. In fact, I don't think you could really challenge this, but I would go as far as to say that we have now made conflict, for some of us, part of our identity. Conflict is something that we are, no longer something that we do. It's part of who we are. In fact, we get so far as to believe that conflict is, or feeling the experience of conflict, is what it is to truly live. If conflict isn't happening, I'm not truly living. We live our lives out in the face of TOWIE and soap operas and the kind of Katie Hopkins and internet troll world. That is where we are. That is the reality of our experience. Uh, And for some of us, that experience is one that we just want to run a hundred miles away from. We don't want any part of it. Well, let me just say, you cannot do that. It would be nice to, but you can't run away from it. It's part of where we are. For some of us, we run to it in a way which is extremely unhealthy. It's not good for you to run into conflict in that way continually, to shape your identity in that way continually. It is not helpful. We find it in all of these experiences. And then perhaps let me give you the absolute clear up front, heads up, we find it in the church. (laughs) If you haven't already experienced it, you will experience it. Why? Because the church is made up, of people like everywhere else. It's got ordinary people, ordinary us, that end up in conflict. And the great thing is that we find that the Bible does not hide that idea. In fact, what do we see in this text that we're looking at this afternoon? We see conflict. In fact, the conflict and strife that we see is amongst two of the, the great champions, really, of the early church. And so I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking about this experience. I, w- I would like us to uh, project ourselves back and try and place ourselves in the early church in Antioch and experience what was going on. Look at what it says in verse 39. talking about Paul and Barnabas, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. If we take our normal experience to that, and I would say, and I would confess that this has been my starting point for years and years and years and years when I come to this text, I sit there and I try to work out whose side should I be on. Who's right and who's wrong? I think that's the tendency that I have. And when I do that, actually what I am doing is I am betraying one of our natural tendencies. Look at our natural behaviors. We look to take sides. So our normal tendency is to try to work out the guilty party. It's one of the things that we do. But I would like us just for a minute to personalize it, place ourselves in that church situation. We have just heard about extraordinary success for the message of the gospel. Barnabas is in Antioch. There is great work going on. But even more than that, we are hearing from people who are really right at the forefront of the success of that gospel work. Paul and Barnabas. The story of Paul and Barnabas is remarkable. It's an incredible story, these two guys. Paul, if you you don't know the background of this character Paul... He 's actually Saul Paul, as it seems is his name, and uh, he was originally referred to in the Bible as Saul. He was the most staunch opposer of the Christian faith to the point of murder and violence, and he is transformed I, I, we, hear, we hear of the idea of conversion, uh, we hear of the idea of turning around. Nothing could be more dramatic than the change of life that goes on for this man, Paul. As soon as he becomes a believer in this Jesus who he had previously attacked and maligned and attacked those who followed this Jesus, immediately he becomes a prominent spokesperson for this Jesus and, and we see success emerging. Barnabas reaches out to Paul in Jerusalem. Read it in the earlier part of Acts. Paul goes into Jerusalem. Now, he has previously been responsible for the death of Stephen. They've laid uh, their coats at at Saul's feet uh, and they've thrown stones. They've stoned Stephen to death. And Saul has given the legal authority for that to take place. He comes back and he starts, or he tries, to engage with those who are believers in Jesus. What would you do? I think I would do what all of of them did. They, They pushed him out. They didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't trust him. Apart from one person, Barnabas. Barnabas reaches out, I think that is astoundingly brave for a start, but it is astoundingly big-hearted. It is also astoundingly able to understand the very heart of the message of the gospel, which is this, grace. Not what we deserve, but what we don't deserve is what God gives to us. He didn't deserve to be loved by the church in Jerusalem. He'd killed one of their previous church leaders. But Barnabas understands what Jesus' message is all about. And he reaches out to him and draws him in. And he speaks on behalf of him. And he finds his place in the church in Jerusalem. That is incredible, isn't it? That's amazing. Then, later on, when Barnabas is in Antioch, there's great success for the message of the gospel in Antioch. This this city is being turned around. There is incredible opportunity and the the workload for Barnabas is huge. So, what does he do? He goes and he finds Saul, Paul, brings him back to Antioch and they they find great success Together, they work together for a year. It's amazing the work that's going on. They get involved with famine relief. They get involved with mission. Everything that they turn their hand to for the sake of Jesus seems to be successful. That's the context in which we see these two men working. They are a great team. They they are a great team. And then we come to this section, and they fall out. Anger and sadness and hurt are felt by so many in a congregation like this. I want you to imagine Ash and Jude and me we're not <laughs> we're, we're not Paul and Bar- well, I'm Paul, actually, but not that Paul we're not Paul and Barnabas, not by a million miles, but if we really violently fell out like this, there would be hurt. There would be upset. It would be profoundly sad. It would be heartbreaking. I would guarantee that we'll, there would be many of us who would be weeping over this event. That's what's going on in this situation. It is dramatically, terribly, awfully sad. That's where I think Luke wants to take us to, primarily. He wants us to see that there is sadness that breaks out in the church because of this conflict. Secondly, if we were in it, we would think that this is a disaster. All of this good work that has been going on is going to fall apart. All the good things that have happened up to now, that's it, it's done and dusted. This is the dream team broken up and it is all now gone horribly wrong. Any of us who follow sport will have had Hopefully, you will have had in whatever sport you follow, whatever team or individual you follow, you will have had moments of joy in your sporting following. Uh, And then there's been that moment when the dream team falls apart. When I was a kid, it was John Toshak and Kevin Keegan. Up front for Liverpool, they were devastating and then it broke apart. But that's mild. Because eternal issues are not at stake when sports teams break apart. But it seems as though when Paul and Barnabas break apart, eternal issues are at stake. I think we would be feeling, potentially, what is going to happen? How can we move forward now in this kind of mess? It feels crippling. It feels devastating as though we have lost all of our strength, all of our ability to move, move forward. We are devastating, devastated. That is our normal response. And I think because of the distance of the text, because it's thousands of years ago, because we're not kind of involved in the emotion of the situation, we tend to read it at a distance, The reality is, it's devastating and they are our normal responses. They are our normal responses when we have devastating experiences like this within our church life, aren't they? They cause tears, they cause hurt, they cause challenge. It is desperately, desperately sad that is where we should start with a situation like this. That, actually, is where we should start in our situation today. If we want to transfer this issue and say, what do we do with this? Thousands of years later, we start by saying, that is sad. And therefore, when it happens with us, that is first and foremost desperately sad. Now, having got through that, let's pick it apart a little bit. Let's see it's sad that it's sad, but let's pick it apart a little bit. First thing I want to say is it seems to me as though it is impossible f- to, to define who's in the right and who's in the wrong in this situation. The Bible doesn't make any comment on it. It doesn't uh, exonerate one and crush the other, it makes no comment. It just says, this happened. So, we can't really understand right and wrong, but we can get a little bit deeper into the issue. The first thing is this, and this is surprising, the reason for the disagreement or the, the proposal which caused the disagreement is a good thing. Look at what it says in verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. That is a great thing to do, isn't it? Isn't it sad that a great thing to do becomes a problem? Isn't it sad that in the enthusiasm for good things, we can end up in a mess? I think that's a great kind of flag to wave over this. It's a great warning for us as we move forward, as we enter into all of these great things that we are seeking to do, there is every possibility that we could end up in this kind of mess. That's a reality. Why? Because I'm as fallen as Paul and Barnabas, and so are you. That's the reality, and there is every possibility that the good things can end up with problems. Don't ever think that it's only the bad things that cause issues. It is the good things that can also cause a challenge. So that's the first thing we see. Let's have a look at the problem on face value. Verse 37-38, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not not continued... Hear me, let me just try that again. (laughs) Because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. That's the seeming obvious and I, 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 I don't know about you but but I immediately I would jump to that and say it's obvious isn't it Paul Paul's right isn't he shouldn't take somebody who's going to desert shouldn't take somebody who's failed already who's already got this tendency not just to not just to kind of not really work hard enough actually bail, just bail out, give up, that just seems just the kind of person that you wouldn't want to take on an activity for the sake of the gospel, but let me ask this question, we, we always seem to have the idea, don't we, that success of the task is the only goal, And that we know how it's going to work out for the best. I I, I know what's going to make this work. And I know that somebody deserting is going to be a disaster. And therefore, we should never take somebody who's going to desert us. Well, you know, the really interesting thing in that is they've just been sharing great success. They've been encouraged about the great success. Even in spite of the fact that John Mark deserted them, there was great success. But we have a tendency, don't we? We know how it should work out. We know how how, how to get a team on board. We become incredibly task-focused and not person-focused. you know what I think you could say in all honesty, if Jesus had been task focused with his disciples all of the time, it would have been a disaster. Because time and time and time again, they messed up. They failed. They didn't do the things. They didn't see the things. They didn't hear and understand the things that they should understand. And so, it, the, the, the face value issue is very often something that we should question in the first place, but now let's dig a little bit deeper, because there is a, there is a possib- possibly there are deeper emotions at stake. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10 tells us that Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. Probably, cousin, it's possible it could be nephew. But either way, Mark is a family relationship of Barnabas. That adds a whole new mix, doesn't it? One is questioning potentially, the you know, Barnabas... He, You've just, you're just suffering from favoritism. You're blinded by family ties. You can't see the issue. The family connection, however, for Barnabas, becomes one of support and encouragement and trust. And so on the face of it, we've got this issue. And at a deeper level, we've got another issue. Which is quite likely, although it's not rec- recorded, it is quite likely playing into the emotions of the two guys as they come to this presenting issue. Do you know what? I think we need to hear and understand and see that that is the reality of how we behave, how we respond. Who's right and who's wrong? Well, one's got family connections. Uh, and one's incredibly task-focused, and one's fearful of somebody deserting, and the other one wants to be encouraging, Uh, and all of that mix of emotions is precisely why we end up in the messes that we end up with, isn't it? Because we've got this this trigger issue, but we all have masses of investment into the, the issue underneath it. Isn't it incredibly sad? But this picture for us, I think, is something that we really need to grab a hold of, to take a hold of and to to unpick, to understand that, that if Paul and Barnabas, great leaders in the church, can end up in this situation, then you bet that you and me can end up in this situation or you and the person next to you or you and everybody else in the room can end up in this situation. We can. That's the reality because we have even the best of motives can present with face value issues which we have deeper emotional connections to all the time. So let's having dug into that, let's confront our fears. Firstly, fear one. He might desert us again. Well, he might. He might. That that is possible. But we've got this far. And it's been a success, and it's been a success when he did desert. So really that issue is something which, is it that big to fall, fall out over? On the other hand, we could say, but if we abandon him now, his faith is at risk. I can imagine Barnabas being in that place. I honestly, I honestly can. I, I want to encourage him. The last thing he needs now is for us to jump on him. If we don't take him with us now, he's in danger of abandoning this whole faith that he is committed to. Is his faith, Barnabas, in our hands? Isn't this a complicated issue? So how can we move from a place of hidden fears, real concerns, true conflict, to moving forward? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. I don't know if Paul and Barnabas spoke about their inner fears with each other. I don't know whether the issues were really to do with the possibility of deserting, whether it was a deeper issue of favoritism, whatever it was, it ends up in a massive crisis, massive conflict. But I think the whole of the, the, whole of the kind of sway of the New Testament, the whole of the kind of journey that we're taken on, is for us to get to the point where we are knit together in, in relationships that can take this kind of issue, that can handle this kind of challenge. That, that These are the kind of things that shouldn't split us up. They're the kind of things that we should work together through rather than become in conflict because of. I think Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4 says it in a way which, if we really dig into it, it it really gets a handle on this, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. I wonder what it would have been like if Paul and Barnabas had actually sat down and they'd said. I'm concerned about this, but let me hear your fears. What are you worried about? Maybe Barnabas would have turned around and said, I'm really worried that that if we don't take him with us, John Mark is going to desert his faith. Whatever the conversation might have gone on, the reality is it might have ended up In exactly the same decision. (laughs) But the decision would have been based on mutual agreement rather than strife and conflict. What a transformation that would be. Those of you who have been in churches long enough. What a transformation that would be if we translated the problems that we face into mutual hearing and loving and valuing the other perspective so that we can come to a a good conclusion rather than strife and conflict. That is at the heart of the New Testament message. It's where we should be. And, And I love, don't you, the fact that the Bible portrays two of the great champions of the faith not handling that well. I love that the Bible doesn't put Paul and Barnabas and all of these other great leaders of the church up on a pedestal so that they seem unattainable to us. But rather the Bible puts them alongside us, marked with our failures, marked with our weaknesses, so that we are able to say, Paul and Barnabas, why couldn't you work this out? Because we want to do better than you. Does that, does that almost sound arrogant to say that we want to do better than the apostles? I don't think it is arrogant. I think that is exactly the journey that we should be on. That's why it's here. Because they're real people with real failures and their example is for us to say, man, let's not get into that state. Let's not go there. The outcome was that there was such strong disagreement that they went in separate ways, separate directions. So, we've seen conflict. We've looked at our normal response. We've questioned the in-depth issues that they actually faced. We've confronted our fears. And finally, what I want us to do is to trust in the future, To trust in the future. What was the outcome? Barnabas took Mark, sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia and strengthened the church. So so the story carries on with the journey of Paul. But actually what happened? Mission got multiplied mission got multiplied one missionary team became two I think sometimes we are so thick that we need to end up in our mess to end up with something good to happen the outcome is that they did a great thing they shared their resources They multiplied mission. One went in one direction. One went in the other direction. So actually we could say for for us as outside observers, the dream team breaking up became two great teams rather than one. So whatever happened to Barnabas and Mark? I love Paul. Paul but I don't half love Barnabas. I think Barnabas is great. He sells a field, gives all the money, doesn't really want accolade, trusts Saul, brings him to the disciples, goes and gets him for Antioch, sees John Mark mess up, sticks with him, takes him on on the next trip that they went on to. What was the outcome of that? Later on, Paul says... In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. That's what he says. Get Mark because he's helpful to me. Why is he helpful? Because Barnabas stuck with him. Because he didn't desert him. Because he encouraged him in his mess. He, he, he mentored him. This... Barnabas, this son of encouragement, which is what he's named by the disciples, it fills, fills out in the rest of his life the right to be called that. Do you know, do you, if you want a mentor, you want Barnabas, I think. If you want to be taught, stick with Paul, maybe. But if you want a mentor, if you want an encourager, stick with Barnabas. In fact, I would go so far as to say they are portrayed in a way which says we need those skills, we need those gifts together all the time, don't we? We want people who are encouraging. Yes, mission was multiplied, that's great. We want people who are encouraging in mess. We want people who stick with us when we mess up that don't kind of measure our success and decide whether we can carry on based on our success. I think probably what, what Barnabas saw was for all of that mess, his heart was in the right place. John Mark. His heart was in the right place. And, and even if it was kind of a bit shaded, we can get in there. I need I need. I need Barnabases in the Bible. The church needs Barnabases to stick with us. A couple of weeks ago, was it last week, I think I mentioned that there's a text which I think we could put right across the whole of the Bible. Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That's what... Jacob, uh, Joseph says to his brothers, "You intended to harm me. Satan, with this breakup, you intended to disrupt the church. But the outcome was for the good. It was way better as a result. You can trust in the future. The messes that we end up in, the strife that we've got. Let's say one thing." Let's not get there, okay? But on the other hand, if we do get there, the future is still not in our hands. It's in God's hands. He'll work it out. So trust, trust in the mess and in the conflict and in the challenge, one, resolve it in a way which is more shaped by love and listening to each other, but secondly, which is shaped by trust that God will work it out. That is where we want to be. Why would we say all of this? Why is this the model? This is the model because of what Jesus said about His disciples. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's as if Jesus is, I'm going to use that word love again and again and again and again in trying to help you to to understand what it is to live together in a way which is going to be appealing to those outside of the church. You're going to be marked in a way which is shaped by love, which is unique. Well, we, we work hard at not being in that mess. We work hard at listening and hearing. But when we do end up in that mess, we still trust that God has got it in His hand. Because the reality is, I'm a John Mark. I'm a deserter. I, I'm one who's messed up. I'm one who doesn't complete things. I'm one who gets weary and tired. I'm one who rebels. I do all of those things. But Jesus says, love one another as I've loved you. He's loved me in a way which is way bigger than my mess. He's loved me in a way which has not let go of me when I've deserted He's been encouraging when I've been so discouraged. He's stayed with me when I haven't deserved to be stayed with. He's loved me as He calls me to love all of you. And I use me because it's the easy way to personalize it for all of us. We are all in that place. Conflict and strife. Let's not get in the Paul and Barnabas place. Let's get in the place where we love one another as Christ has loved us.